Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all for joining us here today. I am thrilled. Uh, my name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm thrilled to be hosting today's event. Uh, on behalf of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, uh, as well as uh, the Federal Society. Uh, we're, we have an all-star panel today of legal experts to talk about the future of Guantanamo Bay and discuss the possible policy options being considered by the Biden administration. Uh, we have with us today Karen Greenberg, the director of Fordham University's Center on National Security, which she founded in 2011. In, a direct, in addition to directing the center, she oversees both the SUFON Group Morning Brief and the Cyber Brief, newsletters covering top stories and developments in the world of national security and cybersecurity law and policy, respectively. From 2003 to 2009, Karen was the founding executive director on the Center for the Center of Law, on law and Security at NYU Law School. She's written extensively on Gitmo, uh, terrorism, civil liberties, and U.S. national securities. One of her books, The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, was selected as one of the best books in 2009 by Washington Post and Slate.com. She's been an author and editor of numerous works, including the Terrorist Trial Report Card, a publication that tracks and analyzes all the federal terrorism-related prosecutions since 9-11. And her latest book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, will be available this August, so coming up really soon, from Princeton University Press. So, Karen, we're excited to have you with us. David Rifkin is a partner at Baker Hostetler, where he's a member of their litigation, international, and environmental teams. He also serves as the firm's appellate and major motions team, lead, team co-leader. Among other roles throughout his long career, David has served in the White House Counsel's Office, the Office of the Vice President, the Department of Justice, Department of Energy, the UN Subcommission, as well as the UN Subcommission on Promotion and Protection of Human Rights. He's developed and implemented legislative, regulatory, and litigation initiatives over two administrations, and has published literally hundreds of articles, op-eds, book reviews, book chapters, you name it, on a variety of international, legal, constitutional, defense, arms control, foreign policy, and various topics. So we're excited to have you with us also, David. And finally, last but certainly not least, uh, good friend Steve Vladek holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. He is a nationally recognized expert on federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He's argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, and a variety of uh, lower federal civil and civilian and military courts. Served as an expert witness in both state, federal courts, and in foreign tribunals. And has received numerous awards for his influential and widely cited legal scholarship, his prolific writing for the public, his teaching, and his service to the legal profession. Steve is perhaps most notable for his co-hosting with Bobby Chesney of the popular award-winning National Security Law podcast. He is also CNN Supreme Court analyst and a co-author of Aspen Publishers, leading cyber, leading national security law and counterterrorism law casebooks, and is also an executive editor of Justice Security and a senior editor of Lawfare. So welcome, Karen, David, Steve. Let's just jump right in. Karen, first question goes to you. Gitmo, open or closed? The answer is closed. All right. Um, okay. So, Tell us why. Okay. So and just, how? Okay. Why and how? Um, first of all, why? Um, Guantanamo, whatever purpose it was going to serve, whether it was for information gathering, for um, keeping people in custody till the end of uh, the war, whatever it is, um, its, its, its initial purpose and its continued purpose no longer exists. We haven't brought anybody new there since 2008. It's, it's overdue for closing. 
Um, and But it's also a stain on our adherence to the rule of law. It is a stain on adherence to any kind of sense of um, adjudicating justice, whether in a war context or in a civilian context. Um, it's time to recognize that the period of the war on terror that started on 9-11 is, is over. That doesn't mean terrorism, the terrorist threat is over. It doesn't mean that there isn't ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others out there. But this particular iconic moment and iconic institution, which is central to how we fought the war on terror, is over. How we do it, it's not one step, it's many, but they're all available. Steve's been writing about it for a decade. I've been writing about it. Many others have. Um, it's not rocket science, but it's not easy. There are a number of, of, of issues. One is the military commissions and what to do with them. And we can talk about that as a group. Um, I would say take death off the table on the tough plea deals, but we should talk about this in a legal framework. Um, Biden has said that he wants Congress to be part of the conversation. I would say this has to happen with or without Congress. We've been closing Guantanamo incrementally over the Bush presidency and the Obama presidency, and we need to continue in that way with those who are consider considered indefinite detainees. Um, and then there's a category of those who we just don't want to let out no matter what. Um, and those are primarily, and uh, Steve might want to add to this, um, and David might want to add to this, uh, got, um, uh, Zubaydah, Abu Zubaydah, and Al-Qahtani. These are two cases which, um, from my point of view, um, and I know this you know, it seems like a radical thing, but it's not, we should just release them. We can release them into the custody of other countries. They've been tortured. They've been abused in a number of ways. The psychiatrist has weighed in on what will be best for Qahtani, which is treatment in Saudi. Um, there are a number of issues, but it's time. It's time to redirect the country in the ways that Biden says he wants to, to redirect it. And, and, and Guantanamo is the iconic symbol of what needs to be done and it needs to close. And just in case you didn't get the, um, the intensity here sooner rather than later. So, all right. So David, uh, Karen says the war on terror, or at least this phase of the war on terror is over. Gitmo must be closed. In fact, she's a fan of, of or an advocate for releasing Abu Zubaydah and, 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 and Mahmoud al-Qahtani. Um, and then and, 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 and some other you know, disposition, uh, uh, maybe plea deals, maybe something else uh, for the remaining detainees. David, where are you at on this? Uh, why? What are your views and why? You know, it's been a long time since I looked at these issues. I'm afraid I reluctantly but forcefully disagree with Karen precisely because at two levels. One is sort of strategic level. Yes, Guantanamo has had many problems. The military commission system has had many problems. Uh, but it is symbolic of what I think is the nature of the threat we face, which is not terrorism, low-intensity warfare. It requires the deployment of the laws of war paradigm. Even if we could get rid of a pragmatic problems, which I'll describe in a second, putting everybody through the criminal justice system for an Article Three courts, to me, in addition to our disengagement from the Middle East, as far as boots on the ground is concerned, which I don't necessarily disagree with, would bring us full circle to the pre-9-11 period, which is, oh, it's all terrorism. Respect, it's not terrorism, it's war. And the notion that we can unilaterally determine that the war is over, to me, is wrong, both as a matter of realpolitik, but also as a matter of law. Uh, that aside, there's something to say about it. So yes, we've not had... And it's not just about the conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq. It is about the fact that we have 
continued non-state organizations like Al-Qaeda and various permutations uh, that wage war against us. They have not had any attacks, large-scale attacks for quite some time, but they're surely trying. So to me, if we were to close Guantanamo, just from that perspective, warts and all, it would basically combine with our disengagement on the ground. Basically yeah. say, let's go back to a pre-9-11 period. And I would put it crispy, that that did not work very well. Now, that to me is, is good enough uh, to leave it alone. And I understand, by the way, speaking candidly, look, uh, the military commissions have not worked well. Okay, Guantanamo yeah. is a, a place for confinement has worked very well. I've been there three times. I would say that if, you know, I had to choose where to be incarcerated, not that I want to be, I'd probably be in Guantanamo than any federal or state prison I've ever seen. But as far as the place to try people, to try any combatants, it has not worked well. Yeah. In large part because of some mistakes made by previous administration, but also, let's be candid, because of the fact that the, the Pentagon, under every administration, including Bush 41, including Bush 40 Ukraine, including uh, Obama, and even Trump, have not had their heart in it, to put it gently. They've done everything possible, including the JAGs writ large, to sabotage every aspect of military commissions. It's a reality. It's a fact. It's unfortunate. So I understand that reality, but I would not want to close Guantanamo precisely yeah. because I agree with Karen about symbolic impact. Very quickly, as far as pragmatic impact is concerned, yeah. I think it would be appalling to re- release Al-Qaqtani and Zubayda, given what they've done. Symbolically, even if they are completely incapacitated, let's say they're disabled, sitting in a wheelchair, yeah. a horrible message to send that you can commit that level of a horrible atrocity and act the war against the United States, and you get released. Yeah. Excuse me. And I'm not convinced that any of these people can be successfully prosecuted in civilian court. So okay. I would leave it alone, recognizing what an imperfect solution it is. Well, Steve, let's let's uh, let's let's cover a couple of things that David just said. So so he said a couple of things. One, um, he's not convinced that this can happen successfully in civilian court. I'd love your view on that. Uh, number two, um, you know, Abu Zubaydah and Katani have. Could- these horrible things there you know at least at least the the, the feinstein report and the senate intelligence committee suggests that that the cia found that uh that that Zubeda was not a member of al-qaeda there's a there's a big dispute about that we can talk about that a little bit um and then i want to talk a little bit about the, the president's decision president Biden's decision to leave afghanistan and whether that has any impact on the legal structure uh and the legal authorities for continued detention under the AUMF. i know karen has thoughts on this too but let me start with you steve and then we'll go over to karen thoughts steve well, I mean, I think we should start by suggest by, by sort of not treating all 40 detainees with the same brush. I mean, okay. you know, I've, I've, I've put into the chat the New York Times is, I think, very helpful breakdown of the 40 remaining detainees. And I think, you know, they can most easily be broken down into four categories. And I honestly think this is a different conversation for each of the four categories. Um, yeah. The first category are the detainees who have been cleared by periodic review boards for whom even under the government's own criteria, there's no longer a sufficient justification for detaining them, uh, right? Those, that, those should be the easiest cases. Those should be the folks who should be transferred. Can, can I ask a question about that, though, Steve, just real quick? So we have had a number of detainees who have been cleared by PRBs who returned to the fight. Any concern about that? That's not true. Jamil, come on. That, that's propaganda. The, 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 recidivism, the recidivism studies have all been focused on detainees who were released before Obama started PRBs. Right. And we're talking about detainees who were released during the Bush administration before there were any of the rigid standards the Obama administration adopted on itself and then was required to by Congress to pursue. 
for clearing of these detainees. I'm not aware of a single case of a PRB clear detainee who was who went back to who who is who is verified as having gone back to the fight. And indeed, that would be a real problem if it uh, if that such a case existed. I suspect we'd have heard about it. But I think okay. Jim, this goes to the larger problem, which is conflating across categories. Right. There are there are, you know, I think the hardest category are the folks who have not been cleared by PRBs and are not in the military commission system. I want to come back to that in a second. But let's talk about the military commissions. Even in the military commissions, there are two categories. There are the 10 detainees who are in pending military commission proceedings. And there are the two who have been convicted and are serving their sentences. Um, I don't know why the two who have been convicted and serving their sentences have to serve those sentences at Guantanamo. I mean, those, those also strike me as easy cases. Um, to David's suggestion- To do what, to do what though, Steve? To do what with them? Send them to another country and serve their sentences? Or send them to Florence, Colorado and let them serve their sentences where all high security federal prisoners serve their sentences. I mean, the notion, yeah. David's blithe suggestion that he'd rather serve prison time at Guantanamo than any prison in the United States, I think, is a rather- reflects a rather, I think, superficial understanding of just what life is like at Guantanamo. But to the larger point about David's charge that Guantanamo, that that JAG lawyers have been sabotaging the military commissions, I think it's worth stressing that the military commissions have done a pretty good job of sabotaging themselves. And just to to take, I think, the best example of this, I mean, the Al Nashiri case. Al Nashiri is the, you know, alleged mastermind of the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole. Um, And three years of pretrial rulings in his case were thrown out by the D.C. Circuit on a petition for of mandamus, right, where the standard is clear and indisputable error because the military judge had didn't think it, he had to disclose to anybody that while he was ruling over these cases, he was pursuing a job as a judge in the you know, immigration wing of the Justice Department. Um, that's not a defense lawyer sabotaging anything. That's a judicial system that can't manage itself. And so, you know, I just I, there's well, a, or, pra- or perhaps, or perhaps a judge who can manage something. Let's not, yeah, you know, right. we don't take the whole. Jamil, there have been right, five. Do you know there have been five Guantanamo military commission judges um, who have had to recuse or have been disqualified from hearing matters because of jobs they were pursuing? That's not one judge. Well, but recusal, recusal is the right thing to do. I mean, you can't say on one hand you should sure recuse. Jamil, they recu- Jamil, they recused only after the lawyers David's accusing of sabotage raised holy hell about it. I mean, I, you can't dismiss spat as like how recusals judge. happen. Can I- you can't dismiss Spath as a judge who flew off the wind here. This is a systemic problem. And anyone who thinks that it's not a systemic problem, I think, hasn't been following it that carefully. So, you know, if the question is, how are we going to close Guantanamo? I think the real question is, what are we going to do about each of these categories? Okay. And to me, the answers are transfer the cleared PRB folks. Let the two folks who have... to be to be clear, the, the administration and prior administrations are trying to transfer. Like, this isn't it's not for lack of efforts, right? I understand. And, but, and, and and I hope. Well, I, I mean, let's be clear, right? That for the last four years, there's actually no effort to transfer, right? And so I think we should be clear the larger issue with the last four years. We can we can. But I mean, you know, it's it, listen. It's May. I mean, I think you know, I don't doubt that there are efforts afoot within the State Department already to try to move. And you know, and I also don't doubt that there are efforts to resume the PRBs with regard to the 22 detainees who are eligible for them and haven't been cleared yet. So you know, I just. I, there are lots of nuances. I don't want to go down every yeah. little rabbit hole. My point is just that I don't think closing Guantanamo is a binary question. I think it's which of these policies are worth pursuing and which yeah. of these policies have proven themselves to be cataclysmic and expensive failures. So, Karen, uh, so, you know, one of the categories right. that, 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 that Steve, just, Steve just pointed out, right, is this category of, of detainees who aren't going to be tried, right, um, who, who are simply uh, are, are, there's not charges being brought right now. Um, and, and are, are likely the, the U.S. interest is likely to detain them. What do we do with those? What do we do with those folks? If you if you 
ran the world. If you had Jake Sullivan's ear or President Biden's ear or, you know, whatever it might be, what would you tell uh, him or them to do uh, when it comes to that group of detainees? I I think this is what they're doing. I think that they will appoint a special envoy, maybe with a little more power than than even Lee Woloski had, a special and and a position inside the White House. It needs to be inside the White House from from my point of view that will oversee all the aspects of closing on Guantanamo, including the special envoy position, which will make deals for each one of these individuals for release or transfer, depending on what the circumstances are and what, you know, they are comfortable with um, to other countries. It's the process that began under Bush, who let out more than 500, that was ramped up at the end of the Obama administration, who let out almost 200, and we need to finish it. Um, so, um, so that's that's to me that doesn't. So, it's just so just they, to be clear, Karen. Yeah. So your view, just to be clear, is that all the remaining detainees at Guantanamo Bay, with maybe the exception of people who are currently charged or serving their sentences, should be transferred out, including the sort of high-value detainees who are not currently been charged. I think you can make deals with other countries for where they can go under what conditions. It's not okay. about they're all different ways of release. Yeah. There could be, um, but, they, but they haven't been charged. Huh. And what do we have with indefinite detention for somebody that not only hasn't been charged, but lives in legal limbo, which, by the way, nobody in Colorado Supermax lives in, where they haven't been charged, haven't had access to due process right. in the way we understand within the criminal justice system. I think it's enough to end this. Remember, when I visited Guantanamo in 2007, I think, um, I was told that the reason they were keeping them there by the person in charge was that um, they could someday provide useful information for new heads of Al-Qaeda that we might not otherwise know and they would know. If that's yeah. the reason, we don't need this facility anymore. If the reason is to, for our pride to say that we've not we can't admit that we've made a mistake in allowing this kind of extra legal institution to take to take um, its existence, then that's a different reason. And I fear that the reason we're staying there is really that we're so divided that we don't want to give up our ground. And that just can't be the reason for keeping it open. So David, what about that? I mean, so Karen, Karen makes this impassioned uh, plea and, and, and a legal argument for, um, for the idea that, that Guantanamo is a stain on our, on our nation's history um, and that now's the time to, to close it. Uh, if it means transferring high value detainees, so be it. There are countries that can take them that will keep them securely. Uh, what do you think about that? And, and if the answer to that is no, what would you do with them? Just leave them in Guantanamo indefinitely? Or would you bring them to the U.S.? Would you, what would you do with, with the group that we think that the U.S., at least, at least historically over three administrations, has thought uh, couldn't be uh, released uh, you know, to another country? A couple of things. First of all, um, apropos of Steve's point, I, I was less than judicious in casting the blame on the Jags. But I would say, not to dwell on it, there have been problems with members of convenient authority. There have been problems with judges. There have been problems with JAGs. Let's just call them military lawyers and some of right. them. I mean, look, nobody, in that nobody, category. Right. It's been appalling. And, right. you know, I, I, I mostly do defense work, so I'm not trying to justify anything to that. They right. mucked it up. defend the situation. Yeah, they mucked right. it yeah. up horribly. In right. part, I suspect some of it has to do with competence. Some of it has to do with desire not to make it work. But let's not worry about it. Well, but, and the uh, monkeying around that the courts and Congress have done over and over and over yes. again. Yes, uh, I, I, I agree entirely. But the more I listen to Karen, all due respect, the more I'm convinced that we cannot go down the path that she's suggesting. Because these are not criminal justice 
problems, particularly, I repeat myself, given our disengagement, for us to pretend that they are. And I know it's a major pandemic and we're dealing with other issues, but God help us, because one of these days we're going to have something like 9-11 again, I'm afraid, maybe worse than that. And for us to completely, I mean, eh, there's a famous expression by Talleyrand about the Bourbons after their restoration. They've learned nothing, they've forgotten nothing. And I'm afraid that the critics of Guantanamo are in that category. I would keep, despite, and I don't mind sticking my neck out, despite some harshness that I'm displaying, I would keep Guantanamo open for that symbolic reason alone. This is war, use and bellow applies. And use and bellow means that you can keep an enemy combatant while the conflict continues. If it's misfortune of certain members of the detainee population, they join a very resilient enemy that has not been reduced to submission, which is a test in international law. Tough cookie. They're stuck there. Because it's not a question of trying them. You're keeping them from being returning to the battlefield. And I, I don't follow the stats on, on, on what has happened when people have been returned to the battlefield, unlike Steve. But let me tell you this, we don't have to. We don't have to. I don't remember in World War I or World War II, in any myriads of wars in our history, people saying, gee, you know, is people going to go back to the fight? Maybe not. Maybe we can have a bracelet on them. It is utterly important to remind the bad guys and the good guys what is the right legal paradigm. For that reason, as to your other questions, I don't think we can successfully prosecute people in the civilian mm-hmm. justice system, given everything that went down. If I were their lawyer, I would give you very high odds that I can get them off on a variety of legal grounds. And I am not happy having anybody be let out, particularly including Zabaida and Al-Qaeda. It would be a horrible message to send. And it so would Steve- be used by the bad guys, one last sentence, it would be used by the bad guys as such symbolic victory. Yeah. US cut and ran on the ground and we'll let everybody out. Yeah. I shudder to think of that. So Steve, I see you trying to get in here. What what do you think about that? I mean, can can we try some of these folks in civilian courts and either be successful or if unsuccessful, we just release them? What's the plan? So I mean, I think it's worth stressing a couple of things here. First, I mean, David refers to World War One and World War II. Let's let's point out. Um, that, you know, we haven't had a new detainee at Guantanamo since 2008. That's 13 years. That's longer than any prisoner of war had ever been held in U.S. custody prior to 2001. And that's just since the last detainee was sent to Guantanamo. Some of them have been there for 20 years. So the notion well, but to that- be To be fair, though, Steve, right, we, we haven't won this war. I think everyone would agree, right, the war is not over, correct? Or do you disagree? I, I, I mean, I think, I think the war that Congress authorized on September 18, 2001, looks so not at all like the war we're fighting today that I don't think referring to this is the same war as useful. But, Jamil, to your question, which I don't mean yeah. to dodge, um, no, please. Right, the, the question of civilian courts. So l- let's back up a second and, and add some context. First, yeah. um, the prior con- you know, one of the prior convening authorities was fired if, me- if media reports were to be believed because he was working on a proposal to allow at least some of the military commission defendants to plead guilty in civilian courts to serious but non-capital criminal charges. Um, such a guilty plea. I mean, David is a fantastic criminal defense lawyer. Um, but I think, you know, if the paperwork is done correctly, it's pretty hard to suggest that such a guilty plea would be unenforceable. Um, so, you know, I don't know. The, the, indeed, it was, I think it was the, the, the fact that that proposal had been making, making progress 
um, that may very well have led to the firing of the prior convening authority. Um, for, the de- for the defendants and the detainees who won't agree, well, so Jamil, I mean, if we can't convict them in a civilian court, that ought to tell us something. Um, and the reality is, at the end of the day, you know, they don't go free if they're acquitted. Um, the government has rather substantial immigration detention authorities that the U.S. government has used rather aggressively since 9-11. That the Not Supreme- unlimited. Well, this, I, so, I mean, let's be clear. The Supreme Court has interpreted these authorities remarkably capaciously. And I don't think I'm telling I don't think I'm speaking out of school. I suggest this court is going to be even more likely to interpret those authorities capaciously in the context of a terrorism suspect. So I just the, I mean, I wrote a paper, you know, 36 years ago. It was actually, I think, only 20, 2012 um, as part of a symposium that Karen hosted about how you could do detention um, under the immigration laws for folks who were no longer subject to military detention and couldn't be convicted in civilian court. But, just, you know, I don't know why all of a sudden those authorities are irrelevant and why we just assume that, like, you know, the very same authorities that folks say allow for the long term detention of folks who for no other for no other reason than just there's no country to send them as opposed to folks who we actually right. held because of you know national security concerns. Yeah. Well, look, I, I do want to ask about that, and then I'll come to you, Karen, but um, I do want to let folks know we will take questions from the audience in about 15 minutes, so please put your questions. I see there's already one in there now, uh, but Steve, I, I'm trying to understand this. If you're going to try them, and so your point was, well, it should tell us something we can try them if we can't try them in civil co- civilian court, right? Well, it might tell us, A, we don't have the kind of evidence we're going to put in civilian court. That might be problem one, right? Problem two, you just said, well, if, if, you're, if they're acquitted, they're not being released, they're being put in immigration detention. Well, what's the difference then? Like, so they're in military detention at Gitmo, they're in immigration detention, some camp on the border. Why, why does it matter what status they're in if they're going to be indefinitely detained under your theory of the world, right? Um, and, then, and, then, and then I do want to turn to Karen, but Steve, I want to give you a chance to respond to those two questions. I mean, Jamil, come on. The notion, that mili- the, the notion that there's no difference between military detention at Guantanamo with irregular at best access to lawyers, with irregular at best access to medical care, with the various human rights issues we've talked about. where there are No attorney-client privilege, apparently. I mean, right. The notion that that's somehow akin to immigration detention, you know better than that. I mean, the, the reality is, listen, I don't think immigration detention is a perfect solution. I think the goal in the long term is to remove these folks to countries that will agree to various forms of security conditions. My point is that in the interim, right, there's a, for the, tran, for the, for the transitional period, assuming, by the way, we're five steps in, right, assuming that Congress somehow repeals the transfer restrictions, right, as legislated every year since 2011, assuming that these folks are tried and don't agree to plead guilty as part of some deal, assuming that they're acquitted. And, you know, Karen knows more than anybody about the Gailani case, where the jury wanted to send a message and still convicted him, um, right? So assuming all of these things that have to happen, right, the, the, the result is not this boogeyman that all of a sudden Abu Zubayda is going to be walking the streets of Chicago. The result is the government will be left to the normal authorities it has when dealing with non-citizens in such a case, authorities that, you know, for better or for worse, are remarkably robust in this context. Um, and indeed, right, there's a provision of the USA Patriot Act that specifically contemplates long-term immigration detention of terrorism suspects based on regular periodic showings by the attorney general that they still represent a threat to the United States. I don't know why that is in any way worse a model than Guantanamo, and I can think of lots of reasons why it's better. So Karen, thoughts? I mean, isn't it likely that if we were to go down the road that Steve suggests, um, and there were acquittal or some sort of long-term immigration detention, that we'd be back here having this exact conversation with Steve and 
and, and you advocating for the view that no, now they're in immigration issues, they should be let out. You can't hold them that long. I mean, I feel like we're just sort of circling around the same problem. Karen, can can the civilian courts work here? And if so, how um, and, and, and what happens if they're acquitted? Immigration detention unlimited uh, for an unlimited period of time. Is that the answer? First of all, if somebody's acquitted, they're acquitted. And the idea, so I just want to back up here and just talk about sort of kind of talking to something David uh, was referring to. The whole reason we got into this mess of this legal mess at Guantanamo and elsewhere, I might add, is that um, we were got caught without the kind of intelligence we needed, without the kind of um, ad advanced understanding of the threat that was facing us. And if people did tell us about it, we didn't listen. What's happened in the interim between 9-11 is now is that we have built up um, an intelligence capacity and a military capacity worldwide and particularly where terrorism is that we should trust. And so- I'll be enough for long. We're walking away from Afghanistan. We're walking away from Afghanistan, but we're not walking away. We're, you know, we're surrounding Afghanistan with other things, whether, whether I think that's, you know, we could talk about that another time, but let's just be, be real here. We are, our intelligence capacity is superior right now to what it had been at 9-11, that we have filled those gaps. Why don't we trust our intelligence services and our political services, our diplomatic services? And if a detainee, by the way, did engage in other terrorist activity, that's our job to know that. Not to say, we're just gonna take people that we think might attack us at some point um, and put them in custody. So that is a problem, thinking that way about law and custody and due process and the way it applies. It can't be what if. It's supposed to be about evidence and things that are real and things that are discernible and things that you could present in a factual way. So, you know, I'm, that's, that's what I think about that. In terms of the civilian courts, we could talk about the Gailani trial. We don't need to, but um, they got around the speedy trial issue. The judge figured out a way around that. They got around the torture issue and still presented the, the case without having to present um, the, the, the tortured evidence or tortured witnesses or anything like that. They tried him. He was found guilty. He's serving a life um, in prison. So what could happen in the federal courts is they're going to look at the evidence and they're going to adjudicate um, and they're going to decide uh, accordingly. And why don't we trust yeah. our system? If we don't trust our intelligence service abroad and we don't trust our court system at home, why, what do we trust? Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, so, so let's talk about that, Karen. Just, just, yeah, yeah, just real quick. Real, real, yeah, real quick, David, though. One, one follow-up question for Karen. It, um, it's not a question of trusting. Just, it's the question of using the right paradigm. And the point I don't think I made very well, it's not just recidivism. It is that I'm afraid both my colleagues are entirely dismissive of a laws of war paradigm that has entirely different rules, not only relative to the detention of any combatants, but the use of force. They'll be happy to dispense with it. If and when, and I'm afraid it's not if, it's when. We're going to have another horrible attack. Then the fact that we dismissed, drove into the ground the legitimacy, the viability of a laws of war paradigm is going to come back to haunt us. So it's not just a question of what Abba Zabaita Katani is going to do. And the more I hear about total neglect and derision for the laws of war paradigm, the more I'm convinced we should keep it open. If no other reason for symbolic purposes. The irony is, frankly, the only argument against it is humanitarian argument. But both, at least Steve doesn't seem to be that concerned. We ask him a couple of questions about people being held in immigration custody. That doesn't do anything as far as revitalizing the laws of war paradigm. And that has to do with drones, 
That is to do with public kinetic operations. That is to do with many, many things. That's so, what can I jump in on that? I mean, I, I, so I, I think David is being a little dismissive of what he portrays as my dismissiveness. Um, I have no problem with the laws of war paradigm. It would be nice if we followed it, yeah. um, right? And so if, if, we're gonna, if we're gonna own the law of war paradigm, how about providing all of the rights that the laws of war provide to belligerents? How about- yeah. Well, but- They are lawful combatants. Therefore, they don't deserve Geneva. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The successive administrations, Democrat- Republican have taken the view that these combatants at Guantanamo Bay are not are not prisoners of war, but are unlawful combatants being held under a law of war paradigm. So it's easy to say, Steve, but that's not what that's not so what the wait, Obama administration no, did. Okay, if you're, you're going to describe it, describe it correctly. Okay, the, okay. the Obama administration never said that these guys are unlawful combatants. They have the not given them. They have not given them the, the benefit of prisoner of war status. That's not the same thing, and you know it. Okay, the 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 right the the reality here is that the law of war paradigm is protective and not punitive. Right, that the, the whole idea of having prisoners of war is that you're giving folks incentives to surrender and to render themselves or to combat for the purpose of, you know, sort of trying to convince them to not fight to the last. Right. So the notion that the law of war regime exists solely to allow us to punish folks who are fighting. I mean, also, I mean, listen, if we're going to follow the law of war regime. That means we should only be prosecuting international war crimes. Right. And most of the Guantanamo military crimes to date have been predicated on non-international war crimes. So I, I'm not dismissive of the law of war paradigm. I just think that the law of war paradigm hasn't, you know, hasn't produced the results the government wants, even when we've been honoring it in the breach. And just to be as clear as I can, you know, David keeps sort of asserting that I, that I think we should get that we should just end military tension. That's not my point at all, right? And in fact, I think there's probably a little bit of daylight between Karen and me on this, right? My point is that we ought to be sort of not letting Guantanamo be the tail that wags the dog, where we keep Guantanamo open because of some future hypothetical terrorist attack that might prove the need to send more people to Guantanamo. Um, You know, with all respect to my friend David, I I don't think that's a good argument for keeping 40 people in indefinite military detention. The question is, what have they done to justify preserving them in the status? And are there other ways of incapacitating them, right, that don't raise all these problems and, frankly, that don't cost all this money? I mean, the military commissions alone have been a sunk cost to date of well over $1.5 billion by some estimates, right? What have we gotten for all that money? So whether you are opposed to this legally or morally or just practically, right, I think the reality is that, like, Guantanamo has not succeeded, and so we should be thinking about better ways of dealing with these 40 guys without respect to what are we going to do next time. So, but, but see, but to your, to your point about the law of war paradigm, right, it is fair to say that the law of war paradigm encompasses the concept of unlawful combatancy, right? And that not all, not all detainees under the law of war are subject to prisoner of war status. So it's not like this is something that we just made up along the way and that three administrations successively have not utilized. Now, whether you want to say that the Obama administration didn't call it that, they held them under the exact same conditions and subject to the same same procedures that the Bush administration had. So whether they whether they called a lawful advance or not, they certainly did not award them. So there's a war first, so, so first of all, Jamal, I mean, we have to distinguish between early Bush administration and late Bush administration, right? I mean, I mean, it was the Supreme Court that told the Bush administration it had to comply with common Article three of the Geneva Conventions, not the Bush administration by itself. Right. I mean, so the listen, I'm not disputing. The, the, the notion that there are individuals who fight for non-state actors like Al-Qaeda who are not entitled to privileged belligerents, who are not privileged belligerents under IHL. The Bush administration took the position that therefore they were unprivileged belligerents who could be tried by military commission, right? I mean, the, the model of the November 13, 2001 military order 
was that the military commissions would be the primary dispositional rubric for all of these folks because the mere fact that they were not privileged meant they could be prosecuted. Jamil, that hasn't been true. That has, that wasn't a correct interpretation of IHL at the time. And so I just, you know, if we're going to sort of insist on fealty to the IHL rubric, let's let's talk about what that requires from the military commission side too. A if position upheld by the Obama administration, yeah. right? If I may. The more uh, here, which position? The I mean, the, the Obama administration... I mean, the Obama administration's view here, I think, was both much more nuanced and still, I think, deeply problematic. But I don't want to. I don't want to. Right, right. I just. I just want to make one brief point. Yeah. Look, I can. I can give you lots of quotes from judges, justices like Felix Frankwood and Learned Hand for the proposition that the purpose of a particular justice system is not just to punish the guilty, but to reassure the citizenry to send them the right message about what is the nature of a problem. That's why I have differences between administrative law, criminal law, civil law, laws of war. With respect, Steve, you and I have a totally different view of IHL and laws of war, okay? They are unlawful combatants. And the reason, by the way, you have a different regime from unlawful combatants is not just because you want them to surrender, because you don't want people to be unlawful combatants. You discriminate against unlawful combatants to discourage unlawful combatancy because it is the worst scourge of war. Okay, the fact we don't seem to share that basic point troubles me. So uh, I have a question for Karen, and then I actually want to go to... I want can, to can I just, Steve, I'll, yeah, give, can I'll I, give you a chance to respond. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a chance to respond. Really quickly. I just so, want to remind the audience, remind the audience that, that we do have a chance for questions in about three minutes. So Steve, you can respond. I have a question for Karen, and then we'll go to audience questions. Steve, over to you. I think the disconnect between David and me, right, is... I am, yes, most of the folks we're talking about were not entitled to privileged belligerency. The fact that they are unprivileged is not proof, is, is not ipso facto proof that they've committed war crimes. And the Bush administration's model was predicated, and the Bush administration's model was predicated on the notion that the mere fact that you are unprivileged subjected you to military commission prosecution. And David, you know, that, that has never been true. That is not my reading of IHL. Um, and I just think that like that got us into so much trouble in retrospect, that we could have avoided, right? That so much of this could have been, you know, if, if, if some decisions had been made earlier to not depart so aggressively from minimum standards, you know, under IHL, I think a lot of the, I, I don't think there would have been nearly the same trip-ups in court that we've seen. But I, again, Jamal, I'm sorry, I don't mean to hide yeah. that. No, no, no So Karen, you know, I want to go back to one of the points you made earlier, right? Which is that uh, we should have faith in our intelligence community. We should have faith in our, our court system. So let's talk about that, right? We have had successive reviews under Republicans, under Democrats, um, you know, an entire review of all the detainees. And it, review after review after review has repeatedly determined, based on intelligence information, that there are a number of detainees currently at Guantanamo Bay who should not be released or transferred, right? So why isn't that sort of emblematic of a belief in the intelligence community, number one? And then on your question, on your point about belief in our court system, if you're right and we should we should take people who are acquitted, I, I presume by that you mean an acquittal is an acquittal. That means they should be released and with no security precautions, no agreements with international uh, uh, things. As soon as they're acquitted in U.S. federal court, we drop them at the border, maybe drop them at the point of, of detention, and we're done. Right? Is that is that your view? And if so, what do you say to folks that say, okay, acquittal in a federal court is not the same as not being a potential returnee to the fight. 
Um, first of all, you know, I think that I want to talk about Steve had his, you know, immigration detention halfway house, right? Yeah. You get acquitted, then you go to this halfway house. I'm not a big fan of the halfway house because I see how it could be abused, but yeah. I'm not sure it wouldn't apply here to sort of settle with some very strict parameters around it. So I think it's okay. worth considering. Um, but in terms of just trusting our system, um, I want to go a little further and refer to something David was talking about. You know, he said, okay. well, we should, you know, it's important to sort of get those, the victims to have, you know, to see what happened and have the narrative told and prevail the evidence. What about the 9-11 trial? Don't you think it's interesting that we've had this entire discussion now for, for a half an hour and we haven't really focused on the elephant in the room, which is this country was attacked on 9-11 um, and in a, in a tragic series of events. And we still have not had the trial and we have the, um, uh, the defendants and co-defendants in custody, and we have been unable to try them. What does that really say about our, our uh, ability not just to try them, but what I hear in this whole conversation, which is our ability to handle fear? Are we really still living under that same fear paradigm that 9-11 that spawned? And I would submit to you that one of the reasons is that we haven't had the 9-11 trial, and that there's this whole haze of what happened that can still you know, run amok out there rather than having the evidence, the story, told before us, told publicly, and get to, the, to that's not going to happen. And so we need to at least say that we can bring the 9-11 um, case to some kind of conclusion. And I think that is incredibly important for just the reasons that David said. And one other thing I just want to tag on. Yeah. The idea that Guantanamo is open is sort of both right and wrong. As Steve said, it hasn't been open since 2008, but the fact that it's out there and could be reopened and rethought about is another reason to close it. I mean, we saw Trump, you know, refer to Guantanamo as a viable place, right, for bringing yeah. people in. It's not a viable place. It can't be a viable place. And I always in, in, in the back of my mind worry that that would that, that keeping it open, quote unquote, leaves yeah. the possibility of further abuse. Yeah, well, thanks. That's a great point, Karen. So uh, we have a we have at least one question um, in the uh, in the Q and A box. So I'll so I'll ask that, and then if there are other folks who want to put questions in the Q and A box, uh, please put them in there. If not, we'll uh, we'll continue down the road. Um, so one of our attendees asked, uh, per your point, Steve, earlier about the very different nature of the conflict today. Uh, what is the prospect for the Supreme Court to reconsider uh, detention authority under the existing AUMF, either because uh, the situation in Afghanistan has changed uh, with President Biden's pullout, um, or just because the length of time is taking place. As uh, all looking back to uh, Justice O'Connor's decision in Hamdi, it at least suggested there might be some un unknown. Who knows where they'll come up with it from? Time limit to this, um, you know. And, and, and the questioner notes that Justice Breyer has wasted support for this. Do you think there's enough interest among the other justices to at least grant cert? I mean, you know, as you know, well, you know, a lot of this depends upon the sort of the, the posture in which that issue reaches the Supreme Court. I'll just say um, the most recent D.C. Circuit decision on this is the is the Al-Alui decision from 2018. Um, and in that decision, a three judge panel said um, we totally understand. You know, o yes, O'Connor and her plurality opinion in Hamdi said that understanding may unravel. Right. With regard to the sort of scope of detention right. of the AUMF. Um, and the court said, but it hasn't yet. Um, and what's interesting about that is sort of in both directions. One, the court took at pretty much face value, right, the government's assertions about what was then true with regard to the situation on the ground in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But two, the court did not suggest 
that that determination was entirely up to the political branches, um, right? And sort of left room, I think, in a future case, you know, maybe not to say that the AUMF is um, uh, sort of defunct, because I think that would be a rather extraordinary view, but to interpret the AUMF in, in ways that impose limits in light of the dramatic shift on the ground. Um, I don't think that's going to happen today, Jamil, or tomorrow mm-hmm. or the next month. But if we're, you know, I mean, the government currently has plans to have Guantanamo open through 2043. If 15 years from now, you know, we're doing this panel again, um, you know, I think Al Ali leaves open the door for detainees to make yeah. that Now, of course, the flip side is this is a very different court. Um, and, you know, I mean, when, when, when he was nominated to replace Justice Kennedy, I mean, I was on the record of saying I thought one of the most profound differences between Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Kennedy would be on national security cases. Um, and mm. that was when that would have been the fifth vote, right? It may now be the sixth vote. So, mm. you know, I don't think this is going to the court anytime soon, but I do think that the Al-Alawi decision at least raises, opens the door for detainees yeah. to look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan as a meaningful material shift in circumstances that will require the courts to address this anew. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can I make a quick point? Sure. Um, we're not getting in the long discussion about the separation of powers and the extent to which Article 3 is supposed to defer to the executive's view as to whether or not in a state of armed conflict and whether or not AMF expired. Actually, one of a few things Steve and I seem to agree congressional enactments don't expire. You could you know, try to construe them that says they expire by their own terms, but I don't see any deadline there. To me, the notion that in a situation where we're not fighting a particular theater alone, we're fighting against a global enemy that has not been rendered in this definition, rough paraphrase of how international works, incapable of offering resistance. Do you really think that Article 3 is going to say that Al-Qaeda has been in various forms in which it morphed, and not to be highfalutin about history, but 30 years war, if you look at all the twists and turns about one set of actors departing, another set of actors coming in, truces, peace treaties here and there. So the notion that because we got out of Afghanistan or settled with Taliban, that there's no state of armed conflict between us and Al-Qaeda, it's not that Article we cannot make this decision, they can as a pragmatic matter, but it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So uh, I'm not concerned about sort of a natural expiry here. Uh, and and again, one one quick point I cannot help myself, Steve, with respect, unlawful combatancy, and I know the history of litigation on this issue, so you don't need to quote from decision to go different view. Unlawful combatancy is a status offense. If you're fighting for an unlawful combatant organization, you'd be a fresh recruit. You could be a cook. They just got trained in cooking and you're reporting to your workstation and you get caught. You're as much of a lawful combatant as anybody else in that organization. That is how it's always been. I don't remember in all the trials of pirates and filibusters, everybody always said, I was pressed. I was not the one. That's why you had the round robin. You know, I'm a, I, you know, I'm always junior guy on board. I didn't do anything else. It never worked because unlawful combatancy is such a scourge. It's meant to be repressed to make sure there's less of that. And I'll just say unlawful combatancy is not a war crime unto itself. But it, but it does result in different in different status for the for the detainee. Sure, but that's I mean, but that's not that's, that's not the point. I mean, we went down like the I, again. I mean, the the rabbit hole we went down here is that the Bush administration started from the premise that every single detainee 
was not only an unlawful combatant, but was subject to trial by military commission by dint of their unlawful combatancy. And all I'm saying is that they skipped a rather important step, which is identifying an actual crime tribal by a military commission. The fact that you're unprivileged does not mean you have committed a war crime. It means that you won't have defenses we like disagree. combatant immunity. We disagree. We disagree. Well, Being a lawful combatant is enough not only to hold you, it's enough to put you to death. All right. So, David, what provision, well, the mil- what provision of the Military Commissions Act authorizes the trial of Guantanamo detainees for the crime of being an unlawful I, I don't want to go down that path because there are a lot of mistakes made. OK, but as a matter. OK, let me ask you this. Do you know of any unlawful combatancy episodes in the past, including pirates, which is a species of unlawful combatants, where you got away by saying I was a sailmaker? Which, by the way, it was true. Sailmakers were very valuable members of a ship's God, company. God, God, look, David, my point is about the military commissions. I'm not denying the power to detain these individuals. I'm denying the power to try them for non-existent war crimes. Those are not the same thing. Yeah, and what, but to be fair, to be fair, we're not we're not doing that today, right? We're not trying them for you. We debate whether the what, what's defined um, under the military statute constitutes war crimes under international law, but we've at least defined them for the purposes of U.S. law. Karen, I have a question for you from Barbara Luce. Um, she notes that uh, Steve pointed out that one of the ultimate goal might be to remove these people to other countries that agree to various security protocols. I actually think that was sort of your point more, uh, Karen, than it was Steve's. Um, but what kind of security protocols do you see? Um, you know, we, we know that Steve points out in his response to Barbara's question um, that, you know, uh, by the middle of the Obama administration, uh, some of the many of the detainees were subject to security protocols. Although, to be clear, not all, as we, as we amazingly learned in the case of uh, detainees sent to Uruguay. Um, Karen, what are you what are you looking for, and is it realistic to suggest that some of these high value detainees, who the U.S. and the, the U.S. intelligence community says should not be released, um, are then transferred? Do we think that any security precautions that we that we that an allied nation, even in the Middle East, whether it's whether it's you know one of our one of our Middle Eastern allies or not, uh, would actually be able to maintain the kind of security precautions that we'd want over those detainees? In some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. And that's why the special envoy uh, position is so crucial and so um, difficult. The idea is to negotiate some kind of agreement that will leave American authorities feeling like they have some confidence in the partner uh, country for whatever uh, um, uh, conditions they make, whether it is, you know, in some cases, house arrest, in some Mm -hmm. cases, continued surveillance, in some cases, kinds of things that we see on people who are let out of uh, prison here on terrorism charges. So there's a whole range of things that can happen from things that are fair to less fair, maybe, but they're Mm -hmm. still can happen within this. And it's not going to be a one size fit all. It's going to be different for each thing. Um, I just yeah. Can I point out one more thing that's kind of... Sure, please. You know, we talk about the authorization for youth and military force. We talk about an unlawful combatant and, and what that means. This is mm-hmm. all the problem of the definitional moment of the war on terror, where then rather than have specific, identified, contained geographical limits, um, you know, temporal limits on what we did with the AUMF, we decided to leave open the door to however widely we wanted to apply it. Now we're kind of living with that. The same thing with not really defining who the enemy was, associated forces. Um, And so we're really at a moment where I think it's important to say, is there a way we can specify who, what, when, where, how we detain, prosecute, and conduct drone strikes and war against? And we're still not there. So Well, so that's a great question. Let's talk about that for a second. So there's been a lot of discussion about this, right, that we need time limits and and expiration sunsets and, you know, What's that? Geographical limits, right? I mean, of course, 
it would be unprecedented in the context of any AUMF uh, other than the attempted Syria AMF that never went through Congress uh, to impose any sort of actual time or geographical or military constraints on a commander in chief. That's never happened before. Um, where do you, but we do have uh, a president who might be willing to, to, to change the 9-11 AMF. He's indicated a willingness. We have Democrat majorities in the House um, and, and, and increase the number of Republicans interested in, in potentially changing the AUMF and the Senate's 50-50. Is there an opportunity here to see a new AUMF in your mind, Karen? And if so, what does that AUMF look like? Uh, yes, it's time. I think, as we may say, it's impractical, but you know, I think it's time to move on from the 2001 AUMF. I think they'll move on from the 2002 one, and then it's time to address- Right, but that one, I mean- Right, right, right. I mean, right. Um, and then, then if they want to have a, a new 2000, a, a, a new AUMF, we'll see what it is. We'll see whether it involves non-state actors. We'll see whether it involves state actors. We got to rethink it. We need to start with the, what's going on on the ground now, understanding how the global situation has changed, understanding who are our allies and our proxy allies and go, go from there. But the, but the idea that we would create another one that was unlimited in so many ways, including in the definition of the enemy, seems to me unacceptable. So, David, what about that? A new a new AUMF that has maybe geographical limits, maybe uh, combatant limits, maybe time, maybe an expiration, a sun, an ending of the war by statute. What do you think about all that? What do I think about it? I, I'm yes. very much opposed to it. Uh, I mean, look, it was a, that's what you call a softball question, David. No, no, no. Thank you. But let me say this. I mean, look, the law of war, one of its many virtues, mm-hmm. it's always been intensely pragmatic, driven by compassionate imperatives, but also military. Imperatives. Are we seriously talking about having a, a legal structure that says because the enemy is attacked in these countries and because they call themselves this, that that's the extent of armed conflict? That's, that's absurd. What happens if the enemy attacks tomorrow in a different theater and they're not attacked before and calls itself, you know, Al-Qaeda in, 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 in Yemen or Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. somewhere else? I mean, it is insane. Uh, or, or, or impose arbitrary time limits. Look, we can forget about war, but sadly, war is not forgetting about us. I mean, what David says is insane is exactly what we did during World War II. Um, when the, the, last country was, we, the last country we declared war against, this is a trivia question I asked my students, the last country the United States ever declared war against is Romania, which, by the way, is a, is a great Steve, trivia question. Steve, because you and I, dis, let's be honest, you fundamentally discount the possibility that history has gotten back to the point in time where waging war or being having war waged against us, against a very amorphous, very flexible, non-state actor. Yes, I understand military history. I'm a student of military history, and this should be a lawyer. I can talk to you about, you know, campaigns against pirates and, and, and Punic Wars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not World War II. Laws of war encompass the variety of different conflicts, variety of different enemies. Are you seriously suggesting that because we had an opportunity to have a particular adversary, Okay, which are Axis powers, not just Germany. And what we do that that's legally compelled when we, and we have somebody who's resisting. No, David, I well, yeah, well, yeah, okay. let's see the answer. Let's see answer. If David's going to keep recharacterizing what I'm saying and to, to say the opposite of what I said, no, 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 yeah, go, no, no, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, make your we're, point. We're, make your we're point. talking about what's good policy. And just to be clear, the two, you know, um, the, the notion that like all of a sudden AUMF is going to morph into a different group, the 2001 AUMF doesn't mention Al Qaeda. 
right? I mean, so, you know, the, the, I mean, Karen may be more in favor of repeal of outright repeal than I am, but at the very least, the notion that we should leave this 20 year old statute on the books without modifying it to account for the radically different nature of the conflict we're in today, you know, I think is that's, so, you know, the, if the question is, should the AOMP reform? My answer is absolutely. If the question should in be- what reform, uh, In what way? In what way? Well, so yeah. how about we start by naming who we're at war with? I mean, I think that would yeah. be a useful place. To who would start. you who would you put on that list? Let's 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 uh, just as, as in general sense, like Al Qaeda. I assume. Yes. I, I mean, I think Al Qaeda. I think in what about ISIS? Less, I, I, what's that? What about ISIS? Under the two thousand one AUMF, a group that didn't Under the exist. Under AUMF, broke? that's correct. Yep. No, I mean, and so Jamil, if 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 the if the if the Biden administration believes that ISIS poses the kind of threat that requires the dramatic assertion of you know of military force through an AUMF. Great. Let them go make the case to Congress for passing such a bill. The okay. notion that we should just sort of let inertia allow a statute that doesn't mention a single group to keep expanding okay. based upon present circumstances. When, by the way, let's be clear, the one substantive change that Congress made to the Bush administration's proposed AUMF back in September 2001 was actually to take out of the statute the notion that the sort of the use of force was forward looking for the purpose of preempting all future terrorist attacks. Well, that's there's language in the statute. Yes, they moved it. You know, Jamil, they they moved moved it. it. They moved it from the operative clause, right, to a prefatory clause, right? And so, I mean, that's a big deal in statutory interpretation. So, you know, again, I think David is is swimming low-hanging fruit when he says, you know, people like me just want to say the war is over. I don't think the war is over. I think this is a very different war. And the notion that, like, we should be afraid of the legislature having a say and, have, and having to have a say over yeah. what the war is and, and frankly, Jamel, over who it's against, um, yeah. right? The notion that that's actually a problem is to be flabbergasted. Well, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. So, so we've got about three minutes. I do want to get to a, a couple of last questions that are in the, uh, that are in the, in the chat, including from Mark Zaid um, and one of our other attendees who ask about, uh, about uh, detention uh, restrictions, uh, you know, restrictions put in post by Congress on the removal of detainees from Guantanamo Bay. But I think it relates to this, right? So, to the extent that Congress has weighed in post 9-11, right, um, we have seen a lot of, there's been a lot of oversight, tons of hearings on Gitmo, tons of hearings on the war on terror, right? There has been legislative action. We've seen actually a definition for associated forces passed by Congress. I think it's unfair to say that they didn't, they haven't acted there. Um, and they've regularly legislated under Democrat control and Republican control, both the House and the Senate, right, um, that uh, to prohibit transfers from, from, from Gitmo, even though President Obama did transfer a number of Taliban detainees without properly notifying Congress, which GAO said was against the law. So Karen, hasn't Congress actually weighed in here? And they've weighed in counter to your view. Their view is Gitmo should not be closed. Their view is associated forces are covered, including potentially ISIS under the Obama theory of, you know, the sort of Prince theory of the world, right? Which is Al-Qaeda by another name is just Al-Qaeda again, right? You know, just because you change its name doesn't mean it's not the same character. Again, we can all debate whether that's right or wrong. I tend to think it's, it's, it's not the best theory of the world. Um, but Karen, what, what do you make of the fact that Congress has taken some action and it doesn't really go the way you, the way you all think it might be ought to go, you and Steve? Okay, so you're right. Congress has taken action in a way that's not very helpful in lots, lots of this discussion. They've had the chance to sunset or reform the AUMF, both AUMFs, and they haven't. They've had the chance to withdraw the NDAA stipulation that nobody can remove from Guantanamo to the United States, for example. But yeah. that doesn't mean we shouldn't try it again. That doesn't mean they can't be educated given the circumstances of what's happened and changed in the world, both on the ground and in terms of new um, conflict situations 
conversations. Um, and this is, and I, and so it doesn't mean it's gone forever. And I think yeah. the idea that this is just here and festers till, you know, the people at Guantanamo perish um, until the war, that the, the war is forever is, is exactly the problem. And so if they have to bring it up every single time and every single session of Congress, so be it. Um, I do think that other events will intervene. Um, and again, it's about fear. They don't want to let it go. They're just holding on to it. Jamil, can, can I say two things that are actually, I mean, that piggyback on that, but also I think go in opposite yeah. direction. One, We're almost out of time though, so yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll be very brief. So, so the first is, I mean, let's be clear. I, I don't think Congress has provided quite the degree of endorsement that you've described, right? Congress hasn't touched substantive detention authority since 2012, when even then it refused to say anything before we even knew what ISIS was, right? And so I wouldn't, I, I don't think we can say that Congress has had that conversation. Two, Congress has relaxed the transfer restrictions, right, from where they were at one point, where now it's actually possible to close Guantanamo without violating the transfer restrictions as long as you're transferring people overseas. But be that as it may, the larger point, and this is a point on which I suspect we all agree, perhaps even David, um, is that this isn't going to happen, um, right, that, that the Democrats are not going to spend what little political capital they have in a razor-thin Congress on this, that Republicans, as we already saw with the vaccines of the detainees, are going to raise holy hell about every little move the, you know, there's no, the opportunity to fix this was in 2015 when President Obama introduced his own proposed AUMF right. and had a whole plan. And that, that window, I fear, has closed. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. what should Congress do and what will Congress do are, I think, two completely unrelated questions that are actually almost on different planes of existence. Fair enough. Well, look, with that, we have to close. Thank you to Karen. And, and all of you and David and Steve for, for being here with us today. Thank you to the Federal Society for Coasting today's event. Please check out their website for upcoming events where they'll be exploring topics like immigration reform in the 21st century, the future financial regulation. Please take a look at NSI's newest policy law and policy papers and our blog, theskiff.org. Um, and please don't forget to check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter at Mason Natsek, and our three awesome podcasts, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, and NSI Live. Thanks for joining us on the Federal Society. Thanks to Steve, David, and Karen. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.